Okay, good morning. I uh, want to welcome you back to our systematic theology class. Uh, today is January the 30th, and uh, as you are watching uh, this video of me teaching this morning, I will be in the great country of India on a mission trip with um, a team of five, and so I certainly uh, ask for your prayers as we are there um, reaching out to our unengaged, uh, unreached people group, and uh, really excited about what the Lord is doing in India and what he's going to do through Great Hills as we reach out to this uh, very lost uh, country of India. But again, I want to welcome you. I want to thank you so much. Uh, you guys are so faithful in coming uh, every uh, Thursday morning and uh, very eager to learn, just as I'm very eager to learn with you and to teach uh, God's Word and teach uh, these amazing doctrines of the faith. For those of you that are watching us, uh, online, again, I want to give you a shout out and uh, thank you for watching us and studying along with us wherever uh, you may be in your, in your home. So God bless you and uh, uh, just, just appreciate you guys being here. So let me uh, lead us in prayer and ask God's favor and blessing upon our study this morning. Father, we love you so much and we thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you, God, that you so loved us and that while we were still sinners, Christ, you died and you arose from the dead for us. And we give you praise this morning. We give you thanksgiving. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of studying the atonement, for the privilege of studying the cardinal doctrines of the faith, like your resurrection and ascension. Lord, I do pray that you would bless the class this morning as they are here and be with Mike and myself and our team as we are serving you and witnessing for you and helping make disciples and teach new believers over in the that great country, God, that you're leading us there in India. So again, Lord, I just thank you so much for the power of the gospel. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to study. Thank you for the privilege, Lord, of, um, of study and that we have the freedom to do that in this great country. Lord, open our minds, open our hearts. Lord, help us to learn everything, uh, God, that you want us to learn and that we would be different. God, we would be uh, sharp tools for the kingdom and the master's use. Lord, not that we would become proud or puffed up in knowledge, but that knowledge, Lord, would translate itself into a holy fervor, love, and activity uh, as we share the gospel and make disciples. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we were studying the uh, doctrine of the atonement, and we looked at uh, different aspects of the atonement and the outline that I gave to you, the cause of the atonement, its necessity, or why did Jesus have to come and die? It's because of the love of God and also the justice of God. We looked at the four aspects of Jesus' pain at the cross, the physical pain, the pain of bearing uh, our sin, uh, that abandonment where Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We looked at that and also how he bore the wrath of God. And we looked at uh, some further understanding of the atonement and then different terminology related to the atoning sacrifice of Christ, such as penal uh, substitution, a vicarious atonement, sacrifice, and there's that P word we talked about last time, the word propitiation, which means that Jesus Christ took upon himself on the cross all of our sin, all of our guilt, and also the holy wrath of God poured out on sin, on sinners. Jesus bore that so that we could be forgiven and go to heaven. What an amazing thing. Also, we talked about uh, reconciliation and how that fits into uh, the atonement and redemption. We closed last time by looking at some of the uh, various uh, uh, viewpoints that people have uh, on the atonement. We also noticed how uh, all four of those that we looked at, the, the thing that they miss is that propitiation, propitiatory 
aspect of the atonement where Jesus dies in our place and appeases the holy wrath of God. So we looked at the ransom theory, moral influence, example, and governmental theory. So that brings us to G. Uh, That's where we are in in the outline. And this just talks about the extent uh, of the atonement. And uh, what Grudem does here in his lesson on this great subject is he just kind of brings things uh, to a close and looks at the extent or... You could also call it the the ramifications, uh, the repercussions of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, how that impacts us, and really he closes with who that impacts. Uh, For example, should we say that Christ died for all or Christ died for the elect? And Grudem, coming from a more Calvinistic uh, uh, background, Reformed background, uh, it's very interesting in, in reading him, and he uses his words carefully And, of course, you're familiar with words like limited atonement, that Jesus only died for uh, the elect over against general atonement, that Christ died for all. And Grudem says, we shouldn't even use terminology like that. He said, if you're a Calvinist, you should not talk about limited atonement because it causes so much dissension in the church. And so he said, just don't use it. Just explain what you mean by avoiding certain catchphrases, words, because they're so... Uh, so reactionary that people just get all worked up. And he says, if we get into that, then we're causing more disruption. Now, he does believe in a limited atonement. He does believe that Christ died for the elect. But he wants to be very careful in how he phrases that. And, um, and so let me just read to you a, a little bit in my notes some of the things that he says about uh, Christ dying for uh, the elect. And I think he does a really good job explaining himself. He says, the Reformed Calvinist position uh, speaks that Christ uh, did not die for the sins of the world, but only for the elect. Uh, And they argue that Christ died in the sense that he paid the sin debt for those uh, who would believe. And he's real careful at this point to say that Christ died for those who would believe, because if you say that Christ died for all, then you've got to be careful of moving into the realm of universalism. And so that's why he's careful to say that Christ died for those who would believe on him, and he calls them uh, the elect. So he's just careful not to move into the realm of universalism, which says, oh, yeah, Christ died for everybody, and everybody's going to heaven. Well, Arminian or Calvinistic, either one, will not accept that, will not believe uh, that. He does say the free offer of the gospel should be made to all people, for we do not know who will believe and who will reject the gospel. And I affirm that. I appreciate that, him saying that. That we make the gospel known to all because God knows. He's omniscient. He knows who's going to accept him and who's not going to accept him. He knows that the blood of Jesus covers the sins of those who believe. It does not cover the sins of those who do not believe. So he's, he's being very careful in how he phrases his doctrine of Calvinism and atonement Uh, with the free offer of the gospel uh, to all. And I quote him when he says, The fact that God foreknew who would be saved and that he accepted Christ's death as payment for their sins only does not inhibit the free offer of the gospel, for who will respond to it is hidden in the secret counsels of God. Uh, End of quote. He references texts like Romans chapter 8, 32 and 33, where Paul speaks of Christ dying for us all, and yet limits the application when he says in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then, as a good theologian that he is, he references verses like uh, John 1, 29, John 3, 16, that speaks about how Christ died for the sins uh, of the world. In 1 Timothy 2, 6, 1 John 2, 2, 
he would say, absolutely, I, I, I believe that. I believe that Christ died uh, for the sins of the world of those who will uh, eventually believe on him and be saved. But he said, I'm very careful in saying uh, it, it, that, that, Christ died, uh, that Christ died for all in the sense that everybody is going uh, to heaven and, and therefore you move into that realm of, of universalism. Interesting. Very, very fascinating. I, I don't particularly classify myself as, as a Reformed person or as a, uh, uh, as, as a Calvinist per se, though I don't classify myself as an Arminian. Uh, I just think it's very fascinating just to study a guy who's given his life to uh, studying things like the atonement from that perspective of the Reformed uh, position. Okay, he closes his chapter on the atonement. And I want to close as well as we talk about the extent of the atonement with these three statements that he says all Calvinists and all Arminians will agree on these statements. Number one, not all will be saved. And that is true. Uh, Not everybody is going to be saved. In fact, Jesus said pretty much the opposite. He said most people will not believe most people will go to hell. Remember when he said uh, broad is the gate that leads to destruction, narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. So both Calvinists and Arminians would totally agree uh, we, we're not universalists. We don't believe that everybody born is going to heaven, but those who believe in Christ repent of their sins, and uh, that's, that's very important. Number two, a free offer of the gospel can be made to everyone. A free offer of the gospel is made to everyone, whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian. Whoever may come, and no one who comes to Jesus for salvation will be turned away. Whoever can come. Whoever you may be, you come and God will in no way uh, cast, cast you out. It makes me think of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's take on the atonement and uh, uh, Calvinism, if you will. And he said, you know, the person that dies and they, they go to heaven, it says, uh, uh, whosoever may come, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the person walks into heaven and behind him it has the words, uh, uh, foreordained and elect from the foundation of the world. So it's a pretty, pretty cool take on it. And also I think it was Spurgeon who, who said uh, one time a student asked him, he says, what if, uh, what if somebody, what if the non-elect comes and, and, and wants to be saved and, 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 and will, will, will God save them? And he says, well, well, yes, God saves. God saves all that come to him because in his mind he knows who the elect are and who, who are not. So we can affirm these things. Not all will be saved. Number two, a free offer of the gospel can be made to everyone. And number three, Christ's death has infinite merit and pays the price for the sins of as many or as few as God the Father and God the Son decreed. Uh, In fact, he he just basically reiterates what we said earlier that God knows. God knows who's going to believe. God knows who's not going to believe. And so we can say that Christ's death has infinite merit, pays the price for those sins uh, based on the, the knowledge of God, the foreknowledge of God. Okay? A couple more statements here just to wrap it up. He's careful, Grudem is, to point out that not all will be saved. And he, he's very careful to point that out and refute the doctrine of universalism. He cautions Calvinists to be very careful in the language uh, that they use that can be misunderstood. For example, saying things like, Christ died only for the elect. He said, don't say that. <laughs> he said, don't say that. Why, why would you want to say that? He said, that's just inflammatory. That's going to cause a lot of dissension and disagreement because 
if you make that statement, then you, you have to really explain what you're saying and how what you mean by that is that, you know, you don't believe in universalism. And so just, he says, don't, don't use words like that. He says that those who hold to limited and general atonement can agree that you cannot say that people will be saved whether they believe on Christ or not. That's a powerful statement. Yeah, you cannot go into that realm of, of universalism. He says, uh, both sides want to clearly affirm that all who come to Christ for salvation, in fact, will be saved. Whether you're a Calvinist, whether you're Arminian, both sides want to clarify or confirm and affirm that all and any who come to Christ for salvation will, in fact, uh, be saved. Um, God's offer of the gospel is sincere, it's not hypocritical, and all who wish to come to him will indeed come, and God will indeed uh, save them. In his final closing statements, he said, uh, again, let me just reiterate, to be careful in the language that, that you use. Don't want to do anything to bring unnecessary, unneeded uh, dissension to, to the body of Christ. And, you know, whether you are this morning, whether you line yourself up more with the Calvinist or more Arminian position, I, I, th I think he does a really good job. He states what he believes, and yet he also leaves room for uh, for disagreement, but he's also very careful about the unity uh, of the church and, and make it all that we can so that there's not just this unnecessary uh, debate and schism or division in, in the church. Uh, we're going to look uh, in more detail, by the way, about the doctrine of election, predestination, reprobation. In fact, that will be lesson, uh, lesson 12 uh, that uh, we will look at one week from today. We will definitely get get into it. So that's our lecture on the atonement. I love studying how Christ died for our sins. And I love 1 Peter 3.18. Remember this? For Christ suffered one time, one time for sins, the just for the unjust, uh, so that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Because Jesus lived and died and arose from the dead, ascended to the Father, I have hope. You have hope. The whole world has hope. We have the opportunity to be saved. A couple weeks ago on a Sunday morning, I uh, had a young man come up to me from Vietnam, and uh, God was really working on his heart, and he came forward, and, and, and folks who were with him said, this, this young man wants to be saved. He wants to give his life to Christ, and he's like 20, 21 years of age. And so I sat down with him, and I just took out a piece of paper, and I just drew what, what I would deem as, as, a, um, as a very simple, accurate way to present the gospel. I drew a little... Uh, like a bridge over here or like a, a mountain over here, and I put God, and I put mankind over here on this mountain, and I left this huge chasm, this huge gap, if you will. And I said, men, I said, how in the world can a sinful man get to a holy God when there's this great chasm of sin? And he, well, he was really listening, and I said, 1 Peter 3.18, I said, Jesus Christ died, and he bridges the gap so that sinful man now can come through the cross, come through the blood of Jesus and be reconciled to God, be redeemed, be ransomed. And boy, his eyes just lit up and you could tell he understood, he, he got it. That is what the atonement is. It is Jesus dying and us offering salvation to all uh, who, will, who will believe. Okay, so now we're going to move on. We're going to segue on over to the next uh, lecture and the, or lesson 12, or excuse me, 11. And it is called The Resurrection and Ascension of Jesus Christ. And so... 
You may be thinking this morning, wow, this is just very core doctrine, foundation, theology as we talk about the, uh, you know, the suffering of Christ, the death of Christ, the atonement, and now we're going to talk about the resurrection and the ascension, and I would say, absolutely. And that's what systematic theology is all about. It's taking the classic doctrines of the faith and walking through the Bible and seeing those texts that deal with those particular uh, doctrine. Again, we're systematizing our study. We're looking at what history says, true. We're looking at what theologians say, if you will. And we're looking, more importantly, at what the Scripture says. And we're combining those in a system where Scripture takes precedence and priority. And we're interpreting these major doctrines of the Christian faith as revealed to us through the Word of God. And there is no more cardinal, important doctrine than the substitutionary death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. One, one theologian, Wolfhart Pannenberg, said this. He said, man, when you start talking about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, you're talking about the very heartbeat uh, of our faith. He says, these are the cardinal doctrines of our faith. This is what Christianity is all about, is Jesus Christ, his death and his glorious uh, resurrection and then ascension uh, to the Father. He said, if you remove these, if you remove either one of these, then you, you, you absolutely obliterate and you remove Christianity at its core. So in your outlines there on Lesson 11, we're going to talk first of all, first of all about the resurrection of Christ and the scriptures that talk about that. And what, what does that mean? What does that mean for you and for me to say, Jesus Christ arose bodily, viscerally from the dead with this resurrection body? What a wonderful topic, and I'm so honored, blessed to be able to share with you about the resurrection of Christ and then uh, his ascension. So A is resurrection. Number one is New Testament evidence. Number one is New Testament evidence. You should have this in your outlines there, uh, and then I'm going to list for you uh, a number of scriptures that uh, substantiate, that point to this doctrine of resurrection. In fact, if we had no Bible uh, we would have no doctrine of resurrection. We wouldn't know that Jesus bodily arose from the dead. But we do. Every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels, each one clearly, unequivocally, uh, I mean powerfully affirm and teach that Jesus Christ died and on the third day he arose from the dead. And of course, the gospel of John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The book of Acts. When you go to the book of Acts, all Acts is is the... <laughs> preaching of the apostles of a resurrected Jesus Christ. And so they go throughout Asia Minor. They go throughout their known world preaching and telling the world that a Messiah has come and that he has borne the sins of man. He's appeased the holy wrath of God in his death. He arose from the dead and everybody who believes in him will be forgiven of their sin, have purpose in their life, have an abundant life. And when they die, glory to God, when we die, we go to heaven based upon his sacrifice, and based upon his resurrection. When you come to the epistles, uh, obviously these, these letters that are written to these churches, they are all predicated on one historic fundamental fact, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In light of his resurrection, how now shall uh, we live? And so Paul writes his letters to the church at uh, Rome, the church at Colossae, the church at Thessaloniki, the church at Philippi and so forth, and, and, and the foundational doctrine is the resurrection of Christ and how that resurrection impacts your life, changes you so that you live a spirit-filled life, you live a life that is different from the world, but again, there is no difference. There is no 
meaningful life. There is no abundant life apart from Jesus' death and His resurrection. So all throughout the New Testament. And finally, in the book of Revelation, the unveiling is all about Jesus Christ. You ever thought about that? There would be no revelation if He was dead. You're not going to unveil and reveal a dead person. But because He's reigning in heaven, because He's ruling, He's resurrected the royal Son of God, we look, we peer into the future, and what do we see? John gives it to us. We see a conquering Christ who is alive in heaven, interceding for his people here on earth, and one glorious day he comes again and receives us, and we will forever be with the Lord, First Thessalonians chapter 4 teaches us. So, number one is New Testament evidence. And I know that's a basic axiom. I know I'm not sharing with you anything you don't already know and already believe, but isn't it good to be affirmed? It isn't it good to be reminded that our faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, His righteousness, the Son of God who came and lived and died and arose from the dead. Number two is the nature of Christ's resurrection. Uh, the nature of Christ's resurrection. And what we mean by this is His resurrected body. What was it like when Jesus arose from the dead? How was his body, for example, different from Lazarus' body? Remember Lazarus who died and Jesus brought him back to life? Uh, well, the difference is Lazarus would die again, okay? He's still a mortal who is going to die again, but Jesus died, come on now, he died never to die again. He, he, his resurrected body will never taste of death again. So he is the first fruit, if you will. He is, he is uh, different in this sense. And I want to share with you 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 15 is the definitive chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, the Apostle Paul, the, the, this is it. He gives a powerful defense, apologetic, uh, and also a powerful application-oriented message in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll talk to you more about that in just a minute. But here it is. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so he has been raised. He is the first fruit. And you ever notice this, that the first fruit of the crop, it tells you what the rest of the fruit's going to taste like, all right? He's the first fruit in the sense that he has been raised from the dead, never to die again. And all of those who believe on him, even though we may die, and the Scripture says we will die, we will be with him because of his conquering and overcoming of death. His resurrected body resembled his earthly body as the disciples in Luke chapter 24 recognized that. His resurrected, glorified body resembled his, his earthly body. His hands, his feet, I believe, still had the scars. And therefore, the disciples could see and they, they, they saw him. It was Jesus, but it's different. I mean, his, his body is, is different. Thomas, he said, put your hand in my pierced side in John 20, 27. Luke 24, 39, Jesus spoke to his disciples, and this is what he said. Behold my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Why did he say that? Why did he say specifically my hands and my feet? I believe it's because that's where the scars were. I am the one who died for you. Here's the scars of my feet and my hands. It is I. It's like Jesus saying, look, it's me. I told you I would do this, and here I am. It is my, it, that it is myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have a flesh 
flesh and bones as you see I have. So his body is, is, is different. In fact, he goes on in that passage and he eats a piece of, of fish. And also he, uh, he has that uh, capacity, that ability to, to, to just appear, okay? And kind of like in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Christ just disappeared. And then all of a sudden he appears with the disciples who are gathered uh, in his name after his crucifixion. Now, Grudem, it's interesting here, he's very careful to explain that we should not think that Jesus passed through the walls in some immaterial, in some, uh, you know, some kind of way, miraculous way, like he just kind of just oozes through the walls. He says, don't, don't think of it like that. Think of it more like Jesus just miraculously appearing in this resurrected body, kind of like, like I mentioned in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. Another example he gives is Philippian, uh, Philippi, in Acts chapter 8, remember that? When he baptizes the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch and then he just vanishes. He miraculously disappears. Grudem says, think about your resurrection body like that in those terms. And I think that's, a, that's an important thing. He says, we do not need to conclude that Jesus' body became immaterial or non-physical any more than we need to conclude that the disciples' bodies became non-physical when they walked past the guards. Remember that? Uh, in, the book of, in the book of Acts. Jesus' resurrected body was special. Our, our resurrection bodies will be special. Uh, his body, though physical and material, was perfected and free from sickness and death. So, <laughs> it's, it's awesome. It's, it's amazing. When you think about Jesus Christ, how he arose from the dead, never to die again, with a body that resembles his earthly body, but it's different. Okay, It will, it, it will not decay. It, it will not be crucified again. It will never die again. It will, it will live forever, the kind of bodies that we as his children will get one day, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What great hope. Number three uh, is the Father and the Son participated in Jesus' resurrection. You know, some biblical texts talk about uh, the, how God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, like Romans 10 and 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God raised him from the dead. But then if you'll notice in the New Testament, there are other passages like John chapter 10 that talk more about Jesus' personal involvement and activity in his own resurrection. He says, nobody takes my life uh, from me. I willingly lay it down and receive it unto myself. So it's safe to say uh, both the Father and the Son were involved in this miraculous event of the bodily resurrection of Christ uh, from the dead. Okay, number four. We're going to look at some doctrinal significance uh, pertaining to uh, the resurrection. We're going to list uh, four or five statements here about uh, the implication. What, what difference does it make that Jesus arose from the dead? Well, it makes all the difference uh, in the world. Number one, his resurrection ensures our regeneration. His resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, ensures our regeneration. Read with me 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again. Now watch that. He has regenerated us. He has given us this new birth, to, here it is, to a living hope through, so important, the agency whereby we are regenerated the means whereby all of this happens is because Jesus Christ arose from the dead. 
His resurrection power, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, he gives me this new birth, this spiritual rebirth, and it's based on the fact that Jesus Christ arose from the dead. By his resurrection, we're born again. We have resurrection power reigning within us. We are still in these physical bodies, but our spirits will live forever in a new resurrected body. Do you get it? Because he lives... We live because he died and arose from the dead. He is the first fruit. He is the one who's gone before us, and we will come and join him. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. What a powerful uh, verse this is in the book of Ephesians. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he, look at it, he raised him from the dead. All right? His mighty power at work when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the, in the heavenly places. Uh, years ago when I was uh, living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and I was teaching at Southwestern Seminary, there was a group of us who um, in our neighborhood formed a neighborhood Bible study. It was very interesting, very unique. I'd never been in a neighborhood with so many Christians. Uh, I mean, it's... It seemed like all of our neighbors were saved. Now, we all didn't go to the same church, and we had different uh, denominations and backgrounds, but most of them went to a Bible-preaching, Bible-believing church. So uh, we all got together and had a um, a small group of Bible study, and we chose as our curriculum uh, Beth Moore's study called Believing God. And this, uh, I don't know if any of you have studied this, It's it's a great study, but the verse that she uses as the foundational verse for this study, Believe in God, is that text, Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. And she really, really stresses and accentuates that the power of the resurrected Christ is unleashed, is released in us when we believe. That's the operative word. Isn't it interesting that we enter the Christian life, we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The way we enter the Christian life is through faith, repentance, belief, Keep that in mind. It's the same way we live the Christian life. The way we entered through belief and faith is the way we sustain, the way we live the Christian life is through faith, is through trust. And as we trust in God, as we have faith in God, then He unleashes that resurrection power. That's convicting for somebody like me. Because sometimes I forget, oh yeah, I remembered that I entered the Christian life through faith, But sometimes I forget that I have to live the Christian life through faith. That God does not always show me exactly what I want to see at that moment. He says, trust in me. Have faith in me and my resurrection power will be released in you as you... (laughs) It's convicting even as I say these words. As you believe in me, I will uh, work powerfully uh, in your life. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That would be the resurrected uh, Christ. And he empowers us to live uh, victorious lives. And he empowers us to live and minister and serve effectively as his resurrection power is released in us. So number one, it all begins with us being born again by the Spirit of God. And his Holy Spirit, his living, reigning Spirit comes within us and our, our, uh, our new birth occurs And the only reason it occurs is because Jesus died for us, he purchased us, and he arose from the dead. Okay, number two, or B, is Jesus' resurrection ensures our justification or our legal standing, if you will, before God. Uh, We are declared 
innocent. Judiciously, we are innocent before God because Jesus paid the price and God confirmed that he accepted the payment because he raised his son from the dead. That's a powerful statement. God the Father exonerated, validated, substantiated the death of Christ. It was pleasing in his eyes and it accomplished everything he wanted it to accomplish and we know that because Jesus, he died, he arose from the dead and all of us who trust in him, then we are deemed justified just as if we've never sinned. I mean, we are now clean, pure and righteous before God and it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 4.25 says it. States it very clearly and powerfully. Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. I want you to get that. He was raised, and because he was raised, that's how we are justified. And so the resurrection of Christ is very cardinal, very central, foundational to our faith, in our regeneration, in our justification. Jesus' death on the cross pays all the sin debt for those who believe. He rises from the dead, has God the Father's approval of what he did on the cross. And because he lives, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Amen? Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, I know he holds my future. And life is worth the living just because uh, he lives. All right, number three or C, Jesus' resurrection guarantees that we will receive perfection a perfect resurrected body as well. Now, this is encouraging to me. This is so exciting to me. I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't believe that I die and then I come back as a bug or as a tree or as an animal or as another human. No, the Bible says it is appointed unto us once to die and then the judgment. In other words, we die, we go into the presence of God to enter eternal life in heaven or to enter eternal life in hell. And so... The hope that we have is that Christ died, he arose, we see what we're going to look like through his uh, resurrected uh, body, which should give you great hope. 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 14 uh, talks about this a little bit. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus, come on now, he's going to raise us up also with Jesus and will present us with you, all the believers raised up together because of Jesus Christ, because he's alive, uh, we, we live. First, 2 Corinthians 4.14, powerful. And uh, again, the greatest description, explanation of this uh, in the pinnacle chapter in the, in the Bible on the resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15. He is the first fruits of those who rise from the dead. 1 John 3.2 says, when he comes again, we will be like him. We will see him as he is. And again, this first fruits metaphor, I want you to grab that. It's an agricultural metaphor. Uh, the first fruit is, is what's harvested first. It's, it's taken first, and whatever that tastes like is what the remainder of the ripened crop will taste like. So he is prototokos. He is the firstborn. Jesus Christ in his uniqueness is the Son of God. He comes and he dies and he becomes the first fruit of those who will come in his holy train. We will come underneath him. He has paved the way for us, conquered death uh, for us. What about Jesus and his scars? Some people have asked, well, in heaven, will we see Jesus' scars and, or will we see our scars? Because you're talking about, Brother Danny, this resurrection body. How, how similar is it to our bodies right now? How different 
is it from our bodies right now? And I, and I think Grudem does a really good job here when he says, absolutely, we will see the scars of Jesus because these will be an eternal reminder. That's his phrase. An e- eternal reminder of his suffering and his death for us. But on the other hand, no, for us. He said, our scars, our deformities, if you will, our difficulties, they, they fade away into this new resurrected body. Somehow we're similar, we look the same, but we, we have a complete perfected body. Maybe that's what Paul meant when he said, this mortal must put on immortality in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. What a blessed existence uh, this is going, going to be. What great hope. That's why the Bible says, man, we die, we don't, we, you know, we grieve, but not like people don't have hope. I mean, we grieve with the fact that we're going to see our loved ones again, that we're going to reign with Christ in heaven in these new resurrected bodies. And this should cause us to strive to live for Christ every day and to serve Him with all that we've got because uh, how blessed we're going to be uh, in eternity. The resurrection of Jesus also has practical applications in just, in just the very here and now and, and what we do and what we say and, and, and how that great hope drives us. It motivates us that we can go through dark days. We can go through the trials and the storms of life because we know there's a greater, there's a greater uh, tomorrow. And Paul closes uh, 1 Corinthians 15 with these powerful words in verse 58. He says, Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Is that not good? Is that not encouraging? Uh, he lives. You're going to live. Let that motivate you. Let, let that be your primary motivation for serving Him, that you love Him so much, that you know that you're going to see Him again, and by His grace, you, you want to take as many people with you to glory in heaven because, and then Paul says, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because Christ, he's empowered us to do that. And again, I just think it's interesting that he closes this great resurrection chapter 15 in Corinthians with these very practical words of, uh, of application for us as, as his followers. Paul tells us, since we have been raised with Christ, we should seek those things that are above, not these things on the earth. Remember that? Since we've been raised, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, let us seek those things that are above. Keeping our focus on the resurrection Christ, it helps us not to yield or give in to a sin. Grudem closes his section here on the resurrection of Christ. And before he moves right into the ascension, he closes with these words. The fact that we have this new resurrection power over the dominion of sin in our lives is used by Paul as a reason to exhort us not to sin anymore. We don't have to. We don't have to fall prey to those besetting sins. We have victory in Christ. His resurrection power lives within us. The Holy Spirit of God enables us, emboldens us. He empowers us to live a life that is effective, a life that is pleasing to God. How do do we do that? We can't do that on our own. I can't do that on my own. Nobody can do that on their own. But the Bible says I can do all things through Christ who enables me and he strengthens me. And a dead Messiah can't strengthen or enable anybody. But a living one can, and he does. And he continues to enable us and strengthen us to be, to be his people. Okay, I want to, there's probably a whole lot more we could say about this doctrine, but I do want to move on to B in your outline, and that should say uh, Jesus' ascension. Ascension, that's just simply 
uh, his ascending or going back to uh, the Father. After he died, he arose from the dead. Uh, Acts chapter 1 talks about how he appeared to people on earth, to believers on earth for 40 days, preaching the kingdom of God. And then at the end of that preaching and teaching ministry of 40 days, in Matthew 28, in Acts chapter 1, it clearly says that Jesus, in that resurrection body that he has, he, he, he leaves earth, he goes back to be uh, with, with the Father. And um, other verses that talk about this would be Luke 24, 50, and 51. Then, of course, Acts 1, uh, 9 through 11. Jesus left earth. He went to another place, and that place is heaven. The angels told the disciples that he would come again. Listen to this. Just like he left. Just like he left as he ascended, one day he's going to descend and come again. We cannot see with our eyes where he went, but we do know he goes to a space, time, place called heaven. And let me read this to you in John 14, verses 2 and 3. What a great word of promise. What a great word of hope here. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place. And I want you to underscore that in your mind. Jesus said, I am going to prepare a place for you. Now, he's talking about his church. He's talking about believers. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I myself, Jesus said, I'm going to come again, I'm going to receive you to myself, that where I am, uh, there you may be also. And so uh, he ascended to a literal place, and that's very important to keep in mind. You know, years ago we, we heard about the Russian cosmonaut who went up into the heavens and uh, very belligerently, very adamantly came back and he said, well... There is no God and there is no heaven because I've been in the outer reaches of the universe and I didn't see God nor did I see heaven. Therefore, God doesn't exist and heaven doesn't exist. And I thought to myself, how foolish. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Just because he didn't see God doesn't mean God's not there. Just because I can't see love doesn't mean it's not there. Just because I can't see jealousy doesn't mean it does not exist. Just because I can't see God with my naked human eye does not mean that he is not alive and well and active. And just because I can't see heaven from a telescope or from a spacecraft doesn't mean it's not there. It's just that he, he can't see it. But it is a place. It is real. Number two, Jesus received glory and honor that had not been his before as the God-man. Now, let me say that again, and let me explain that. Jesus receives glory and honor that had not been his before as the God-man. Now, he's always received glory and honor as the eternal Son of God, second person of the Godhead, second person of the Trinity, yes. Okay, we, we believe that, we affirm that. However, he had received this glory and honor as the eternal Son but that was not his as the incarnate God-man. Because, John 17, 5, Jesus prayed to the Father before his death, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory which I had with you before the world was made. Okay? So he, he comes he, he, in, in Philippians 2, and he leaves the glory of heaven and the worship of angels, and he, he comes to earth. And Jesus does his work. He does his redeeming, redemptive work. He lives his perfect life. He dies his, his amazing sacrificial uh, uh, propitiation death. He rises from the dead. He ascends to the Father and receives that glory now as, as the God-man and, and forever in that form of uh, Jesus Christ. So 
Uh, Revelation 5.12 talks about now in heaven, ooh, he receives glory. All the glory, the worship, the honor is his based on what he did, based on who he was, who he is, what he did on the cross, his resurrection. This is what they say. Now with a loud voice they sing, worthy is the lamb. You see this? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, and wisdom, strength, and honor, and there it is, glory and blessing. Now we sing that in heaven based on what he did on earth. So he's always received glory as the eternal son, but now as the God-man, glory that he did not receive until he went to the cross, now he receives because he accomplished everything that God the Father commissioned him uh, to accomplish. So we see Jesus in his glory and his honor that had not been his before as the God-man. Number three, Jesus was seated at the right hand of God, and this is also called his session, his session, S-E-S-S-I-O-N. The session of God just means that he is at God's right hand, and we see this in heaven. We see this in the Scripture. Hebrews 1.3 says, When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of of the majesty on high, okay? Now, he has ascended back to heaven. Uh, He sat down, why? Because his work of redemption is complete. Uh, He did the Father's will completely, and now we are forever the beneficiaries of his great atoning sacrifice, of his resurrection and ascension. He sits in the place of authority at the right hand. He reigns and he rules, and from this position of authority, okay, Jesus that he received from the Father... uh, He now has this authority to send the Holy Spirit to come in Acts chapter 2. So Jesus ascends, and now he sends the third person of the Trinity. This is amazing doctrine. Now he sends the Holy Spirit. Remember, he told the disciples, gather in Jerusalem, wait and tarry until I come, until I visit you, and he came. He came in power uh, through the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Grudem points out that Jesus is not perpetually fixed there at the right hand of God uh, because we also see him walking among the midst of the churches in Revelation chapter 2. And so he is at the right hand of God. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And he also, in his omnipresence, he walks around in the midst of the churches. In fact, he also says that where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And by the way, by the way, the only way he can do that is if he's alive. If he's dead... He can't do any of that. But he's not dead, glory to God. He arose from the dead. He ascended to the Father. He lives forevermore. And in his authority and in his power, he sends the Holy Spirit of God who comes and who tabernacles with us even to this day. Number four, Jesus' ascension has doctrinal implications for our lives. It's one of the things I like about Grudem. He is a great theologian, but he's not just a dry, boring theologian. I mean, he has real-life application. What do these grand, amazing doctrines have for us? I mean, really, what difference do they make in our lives? Well, he says Christ's ascension to heaven foreshadows our ascension to heaven to be with him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, run the race with perseverance. I mean, there's a cloud of witnesses around you this very day and me. And these clouds of witnesses, these Old Testament, New Testament saints of God who've gone before us, they encompass us in this, in this great cloud of... I look at it as if they're just cheering us on. And they're saying, run your race, race with perseverance. Do not quit. 
do not falter, do not fall away, be faithful, keep going, keep running, keep serving, because look, they've ascended. That's what we're going to do. We're going to ascend, just like them, and uh, that motivates us, that spurs us on, according to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, Jesus is in heaven, and that's where we're going, hallelujah, that's, that's a good word. He's there, that's where we're going to be. And we know He's there, because He ascended to the Father. He's the reason for us going, and He's the one we worship uh, when, we, when we get there. We will sit with Jesus in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians 2.6. Let me say that again. Ephesians 2.6, we will sit with Him in heavenly places. And this is an interesting text, and I do not know what it means, okay? I'll just tell you, I don't, I don't understand what I'm about to say. I just accept it. I believe it. 1 Corinthians 6, 3 says, we will judge angels. What does that mean? I don't know. But it sounds fun. It sounds exciting that 1 Corinthians 6, we will judge angels. Now, again, dead people don't do that. We don't, you don't judge, but we're not going to die. I mean, we will die, but we're not going to remain dead. We will live. We will be with God in heaven. Who knows what all we're going to do? Hallelujah. I can't, I can't, my mind, I can't even wrap my mind around forever being in the presence of God being in the presence of His saints, worshiping Him, serving Him, doing whatever He He wants us to do in heaven, and the joy and the bliss and and, and just the absolute sense of just being in the very presence of God. Oh, my word, what a glorious day. So we will close this section on the ascension as Grudem does, um, on the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And we're going to close it by saying He... He closes by saying there are two states of Christ's existence. And and this is is interesting. There is the the humiliation state and the exaltation state. And what he means by that is in the former, which is his humiliation, this would include things like his incarnation, his suffering, Jesus' death, his burial. Okay? Those are his... Uh, That would be classified more as the humiliation aspect of Christ and the incarnation, his death, his suffering, the cross. Okay, but the second state is referred to as his exaltation, never to die again, never to suffer again. This would include things like resurrection and ascension and session at the right hand of the Father, ready to return at any moment in power to receive us, his children. So that wraps up our session on... Uh, resurrection and ascension and I'm sorry I'm not here in person for you to answer your great questions because I know you will have great comments great insight and great questions to ask and maybe you can save them uh, for next time when I'm I'm able to be with you and uh, we can seek to talk to you a little bit more about it uh, the, the last part of the atonement of Christ and then his resurrection and his uh ascension so let me see kind of where I am on time. How are we doing on time back there, Corey? So we're about done? All right. So we're going to, uh, we're going to wrap it up, and uh, I'll close with a quick prayer, and we'll let, you, we'll let you go. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Bless your name. Thank you, Jesus, for these amazing truths from your word. We love you very much. We ask you to help us go in your power to be good witnesses for you, serve you, In the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to make a difference in the very lives that we come in contact with this very day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. You're dismissed.